Hey, listeners, this is part one of a two-part conversation we had with Fernando Barraza about U.S.-Mexico planning. In part one, we talk about the overarching U.S. international tax rules that come into play. And in part two, we drill down into specific planning ideas and very specific Mexico issues to keep in mind. Enjoy. Technically, all of a sudden, you, you know, Joe Smith, that has nothing to do with anything international or anything, you know, has no idea about anything, you know, foreign related, all of a sudden, you you got trapped into this international compliance world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I am joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing tonight? Yeah, I'm doing very well. Uh, it's been a it's been a long week. That's Not so done with the week, but it feels like a, a long week already. Yeah. Well, it feels it's been a long week, but then at the end of the day, I'm like, how is it Thursday and nothing's been done? Like, <laughs> nothing's been. Ac- it, sh- it should be Monday when you look at how much I still need to accomplish and finish out for the rest of the week. It's just yeah. Uh, that's been that kind of week, right? Where like you, you work and work and work and then you're like, what did, what did I do? Mm-hmm. Like, I know I did something, just nothing came to a conclusion. Yes, exactly. I feel like that's how the next couple weeks are going to feel like for us. I think that's true. I think, uh, you know, we've obviously got a bit of a year end push, which can happen mm-hmm. this year, somewhat driven by potential changes in the tax laws. If it was a different year, it'd just be some other year end thing, you know, it'd be a, a mm-hmm. closing on the business sale or something that's got to close by the year, the year end, you know, there'd be something else. There's always something else, but yeah, it always, it always feels like there's, a, there's this crunch at the end of the year because you're trying to get stuff done by the end of the calendar year because for individuals, that's their tax year. And then the year turns over and you come back in the office after enjoying the new year and you realize, oh crap, there was a bunch of stuff we weren't doing when we were doing all that year end stuff. Now we <laughs> yes. have to do all that stuff. Like we have mm-hmm. to stop ignoring the things we were ignoring for several months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then at that point, then you're getting close to spring. Oh, look, there's another tax deadline mm-hmm. and that just keeps going and going. Yep. Such is the cycle. Yes. Such is the cycle. Well, talking about uh, tax planning, uh, I thought tonight we would talk about cross-border planning. We've talked a bit about cross-border planning in the past, but uh, what I thought we would do is talk about it some more tonight and then have a little bit of a special focus on U.S.-Mexico cross-border issues, something that we run into all the time. Uh, A lot of that is frankly, due to the fact that we live in Tucson and it's, you know, whatever, 90, you know, 90 miles north of the U.S.-Mexico border, something like that. And so there's a heavy U.S.-Mexico connection uh, in the geography, in the economy, in the people who live here. I didn't think there'd be uh, anybody better to chat about that with than Fernando Barraza. Fernando is a shareholder at the accounting firm Beach Fleischman. Uh, Fernando is a, a double wildcat, just like Rachel Sass. Uh, he has his undergrad and master's degree in accounting from, from the University of Arizona. Fernando does a lot of cross-border work. We've, we've actually worked with Fernando uh, quite a bit on cross-border matters, uh, dealing with the U.S. and Mexico and other places. And so, Fernando, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Brent, for having me. You know, it's, it's, um, 
when you introduce this topic, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I wanted to jump on the occasion because like you said, there's, there's just a lot of uh, information to cover. Uh, we're also getting ready to, to do, you know, our year end planning. So we're getting all those phone calls, you know, clients are, are, are trying to move the needle, making sure they get stuff done before the year end. And, um, you know, right now is, is, is just that time of the year. So I, yeah, I'm happy to be here. Happy to, you know, that you guys invited me over to do this with you. And um, yeah, let's, you know, let's talk cross-border tax issues. You know, there's nothing more exciting than nothing. That. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing. Uh, there's nothing that will stop everybody from speaking to you than starting to talk about cross-border tax issues. Actually, I find I don't know if I don't know if you feel the same way, Fernando, but I find that um, when a, well, two things, sorry. First, I ha I actually have a difficult time explaining to people what I do for a living um, because we have, we have a bit of a niche practice. And so it's not really a practice that relates to a lot of the populace. It's a very narrow subset of the populace that really, really needs our services. And then when I start to explain to people the cross-border stuff, like I can just... As, as the words are coming out of my mouth, I can see their minds beginning to wander to some like they've got some like mental happy place where they go when they're in a traumatic situation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, the area we practice in is definitely very niche. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, not for everybody. However, you know, being in Arizona, you know, being in Tucson specifically, or even in Phoenix, you know, you'd be surprised how globalized of an, an economy Arizona has overall, right? You know, we are really close to Mexico, but not only Mexico, you know, we do have, you know, you yourself can probably relate to this. You know, we have clients from all over the world, you know, Australia, Japan, all over Europe, all the Latin American countries. Obviously, there's a you know a, a focus and, and and you know the, the the scales are tipped heavily towards Latin America and Mexico specifically. But but you know you're right that it's a very niche area and it's not really something that you know uh, that everybody might be interested in or affected by. But then again, there are a lot of you know this is a globalized economy. It's a globalized world, and and you know. You know, not considering all the COVID restrictions right now, you know, there everybody is from all over the place. Even me myself, you know, I'm 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 not originally from Arizona. I am from Mexico. Uh, my wife's from Mexico. You know, so we deal with you know the reason I started get, getting into cross border uh, tax planning and interested in international tax compliance was because I was directly impacted. You know, it's you know how do you prepare your tax return? The year I got married, you know, we'll get into this a little bit. You know, maybe I'm I'm kind of. Uh, getting into the weeds of things, but the year I got married, my wife was a dual status resident. So what do you do? So, um, so yeah, you know, just to summarize, you'd be surprised how many people are impacted by cross-border planning, cross-border tax issues. Um, so again, happy to be here. And, and, and even though it is very niche, I do think it's, it, you know, it does encompass and, 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 and it's a very wide net that, that is cast on, on taxpayers and, and people that are affected by by this. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's hundred percent accurate. And and I don't think that Arizona is unique. And in fact, it's probably the case that Arizona is more on like the lower end of the scale of levels of the economy that that are internationally based. You know, it's not like we uh, have a, a large uh, financial centers like a Los Angeles or a Dallas or a New York or a Chicago, you know, we don't have those big hubs. So in some states, it's it's even more prevalent. But I but what I find, at least from a professional perspective, is that it means 
within the professional ranks in Arizona, there are fewer proportionately uh, fewer practitioners who know anything about cross-border tax issues. And then when, so when you, when you kind of run down those proportions, uh, it's a smaller number of people, but then when you play that out over the need in the state, it actually means that your piece of the pie is actually pretty big um, because there's a fairly big need, but a very small piece of the populace that really knows anything about the tax issues. So it's it's been an interesting area for us where, yeah, we're the same as you. We have clients all over the place. You know, we're on phone calls and, and Zoom calls and video calls with people in Canada and Mexico and, and all over Asia and Australia and Europe. And uh, it, it's somewhat surprising to me, but really cool uh, that you get to do that from a place like Tucson, which is a very pleasant place to live. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. Well, I thought... Uh, uh, as far as order of events, what maybe we should do is first dig in just a little bit on some common cross-border tax issues as a general matter. That this would be like these are issues that are just going to apply to basically everybody. Uh, if you have some sort of cross-border issue, and we can kind of define like what we mean when we say cross-border issue, and then kind of take that framework because that's this is going to apply to 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 anybody, and then filter it through the lens of all right, what about U.S. Mexico um, because that's a uh, you know, that that's a un every every country vis-a-vis the U.S. then has its own very specific and unique issues. And Mexico is not distinct because it's a sovereign nation with its own laws and its own ways of doing things. And every country is the same way. So then you you know filter it down through the the lens of U.S. Mexico dealings and kind of talk about some what are some of the key issues. You know, not not an exhaustive list of all the issues, but key issues that arise in in U.S.-Mexico planning specifically. How's that sound? Sounds like a plan. You know, and, and, and I think you nailed it right now, you know, with regards to international tax compliance, international tax planning and whatnot, it doesn't really matter. Well, you know, uh, this is going to be a very broad statement, but uh, does it really matter where you're from or what your foreign activities are? There's kind of a layer, like an overall general layer of things to consider, you know, whenever you're, you know, whether you're doing inbound or outbound, you know, whether you're a foreign national investing in the U.S. or vice versa, if you're a U.S. national investing abroad, you know, there's a kind of a, a, a kind of a checklist of, of things that you always have to take into consideration. Uh, and then once you get into the weeds of things, that's when you look into the underlying country to see, okay, what does that specific country's income tax treaty have to offer me? Or, you know, um, if you're worried about social security, for instance, what does that specific country's totalization agreement have to offer? So, but overall, you know, I, I agree with you, maybe if we cover kind of like the groundwork of international tax planning and tax compliance, and then drill it down and, and, and use some specific Mexico examples, would be great. So I know, Fernando, you know, when we're looking at tax planning considerations, we really, you know, there's, there's the two realms, there's income tax, and then there's the estate tax side. So on the income tax side, kind of what are the main concerns that, that you would have for someone who's got some cross-border work going on? So from an, from an income tax perspective, um, it depends. You know, like I said, if, if, uh, if it's an inbound or outbound, you know, if, if it's a foreign national coming to the U.S., um, you know, what are they investing in? You know, we have a, you know, I, I don't want to get very technical here, but there's usually when you're a non-resident alien and, you know, uh, alien is specific to the Internal Revenue Code. So uh, if you're not a non-resident alien, basically you're not a U.S. citizen, you have not spent too many days in the U.S. to now be considered a resident, and you do not have a green card, you are considered a non-resident alien. 
So if you're in that bucket, um, what essentially, you know, for income tax purposes, you have to look at what, what are your activities in the U.S.? Is it just investment type income? You know, are you, do you just have money in a bank account or, in a, you know, with a, a, a brokerage account that uh, generates interest, dividends, capital gains? That kind of puts you in one bucket. And we call that FDAF, fixed, determinable, annual and periodic income. So that type of income activity, you know, your rents, your royalties, your interests, your dividends, your capital gains are taxed a certain way. Um, if you, if you, if you're not in, in the FDAP category, let's say you, you know, you invested in a restaurant, you, you invested in a warehouse, you actually opened a business here in the U.S. with other investors, then it's, it's different. It's called ECI, effectively connected income. So if you're in that other category, the income tax consequences are completely different. Um, and when I say completely different, everything's different. Tax rates are different. Different. Uh, what you have to file might be different. You know, when you just have FDAP, you might not even have to file a tax return. You, when you have ECI, you might have to file a tax return. So there's a lot of different things that you have to, you know, first, you know, kind of go through to to kind of check all these boxes to see, okay, where am I? What tax rate might might impact me? And then how do I properly comply with the U.S. tax regu regulation? Maybe just to, to drill into that slightly um, and take one or two steps back to think about, okay, what, why would we have a system like this from a policy perspective? You know, why would we, the U.S., have a system like this? And there's a couple of, there's a couple of things that I always try to remember. Number one, there is a rule in international law, a general rule in international law that says absent some agreement between countries otherwise, a foreign country will not enforce the tax laws of another country. And that means we, the U.S., we don't have the right to tax foreigners on their non-U.S. Uh, dealings, because if we try to do that and all that activity is happening outside the U.S., other countries are not going to help us enforce those laws, generally speaking. That's because of this general rule in uh, international law. There's some exceptions to it, but that's sort of the general rule. And so the U.S. legal system is set up in a way where we're trying to capture the things that we can actually tax easily. And so we're focused on what are the U.S. source items of these foreign individuals or even foreign com uh, companies as well. You know, what are the U.S. source items, uh, sources of income, that is, uh, in the U.S. that this foreign person has? Because we can, we can grab onto that U.S. source item. And it's fairly common for uh, countries internationally, not just in the U.S., to then focus on two distinct sets of income. One being this sort of passive source, like you're saying, Fernando, the FDAP, your interest, dividends, royalties, rental income, et cetera, passive income sources. To focus on that as one separate bucket and then to focus more on what are more active income items like things that are happening within a trader business. Um, and then we lump in ownership of, of real estate by foreigners into that bucket too. Um, and we treat that a different way. And the passive sources, the concern with the passive sources is that the money will flee the country and we never get our cut. And so the way we try to deal with that because we want to get paid is we say, all right, all of you U.S. companies or U.S. individuals who are paying those passive sources of income to the foreigner, you have the obligation to withhold tax and pay it to the U.S. government. The general tax rate is 30%, can change depending on, on 
the treaties as you were alluding to there, Fernando. And that's it. It's just a flat tax rate on that passive income. But the obligation to withhold the tax and pay it is on the U.S. payor of those items and not the foreigner. I think sometimes that catches people by surprise. And it's it's common in this area for what you would think of as the rules for an American to actually be flipped on their heads for like, you know, for us, we're U.S., citizens, we have to file a tax return every year. We're the ones that have to pay tax in the U.S., uh, you know, not, not, you know, kind of stepping back from, say, em- employers withholding em- uh, taxes on, on salaries, et cetera. But we're the ones that are obligated to pay the tax to the, the government. In the, in the foreign sphere, in this FDAP sphere in, in particular, the obligation is not on the actual taxpayer. The obligation is on the U.S. person who's paying the money to the foreigner. And that's a really weird thing to kind of wrap your mind around, but that's how it works. And then with ECI, um, we still have a little bit of that. There are some little corners of the ECI rules that require withholding and payment to the government so that the government gets their cut of the pie. Um, but the real difference is that the ECI income gets taxed at normal tax rates, whatever the normal tax rate would be on that income, say for uh, a US citizen, and the foreigner can take deductions against that income, but the foreigner has to file a tax return in the United States. And that also can come as quite a shock uh, for somebody who doesn't necessarily want to be filing tax returns with the U.S. or get uh, intertwined with the Internal Revenue Service, which has a very bad reputation internationally. Um, that can that can be a surprise. Yeah, I agree. And and you know you you touched on a lot of points that, you know that, that are very interesting in in that you know like I mentioned earlier we are a globalized economy you know not only in Arizona the whole U.S. is is, is you know one of, it's the strongest economy in the world so we do attract a lot of foreign investment and and with that you know attracting that foreign investment which is great for the U.S. economy comes all these obligations that you were mentioning. You know, um, if you are paying a, a foreign national, you might have a withholding requirement and not even know about. It. You know, and I'll give you a very simple example. You know, we, you know, I'm, I'm currently you know throughout you know multiple years, but especially this year, we've seen a lot of foreign investment uh, pour into the U.S. real estate market. Well, you know, we, we we advise clients from Mexico and from all over the world that are you know coming to the U.S. to buy real estate and rent it. Airbnb it, you know, if it's residential property, uh, if it's commercial property or, or, you know, warehouse type property, you know, they're obviously uh, entering the, the, the rental, the rental economy in the U.S. So, but you as a rentor, you know, have to now withhold on any payments that you make to this foreign tenant. You know, you might not even know that you have this obligation, right? Because technically this rental income is, it falls in that FDAP category for that foreign investor. And you as the, the you know, the, the rentor of that, that, you know, residential property, whether it's even for an Airbnb, well, I think maybe Airbnb in this case would have the obligation to do the withholdings themselves. Not sure if they're taking care of that correctly or not, but, but technically all of a sudden, you, you know, Joe Smith, that has nothing to do with anything international or anything, you know, has no idea about anything, you know, foreign related, all of a sudden, you, you got trapped into this international compliance world. So and, and I think that that's really what drew me, you know, to this particular niche area is, is you know, anybody can be trapped in this international compliance world. So, um, and it's complicated, it's fun to work in, and very easily, you know, you, you can see all these intricacies of, of uh, you know, tax planning needs and, and tax advice in general. So, and we're only just talking about inbound at the, at the moment, you know, foreign nationals investing in the U.S. There's, 
you know, millions and millions of, 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 of U.S. citizens and, and Americans that are investing abroad as well, right? So that also comes with a whole slew of, of reporting requirements and obligations and, and tax issues in and of themselves that, that, that you need to um, obviously comply with. Um, and, but what I do say, you know, with clients is, in, in many ways, it's very similar to how we treat foreign nationals investing in the U.S. with this FDAP category and this ECI category. A lot of countries all over the world have similar type of tax systems where when a U.S. national uh, uh, you know, expands operations abroad, invests abroad, they kind of have to navigate these rules themselves in that other country. You know, talking specifically about Mexico, they also have kind of an FDAP uh, uh, tax code, you know, a portion where investment earnings are taxed a certain way and actually, you know, trader business activity is taxed differently. And the withholding requirements, again, you know, uh, fall on the payor so that U.S. national investing in Mexico, that Mexican individual that's making payments now to this U.S. individual or company has to, has to do Mexico withholding. So, you know, uh, you, you, it's, it's kind of the same coin, you know, it's, it's the same, same two sides of the coin. But then, you know, now in the weeds of things, you kind of have to look at the treaties and then some other agreements that, that, that that's where it starts getting pretty complicated. Yeah, it's the general concepts are, are fairly consistent in the international sphere, which is what you would want. You, you know, you don't want totally different rules for every single country. Uh, so the, the systems tend to have uh, similar general concepts built into them. It's when it's when you kind of get into the weeds and the details of how each system is specifically implemented, where the differences really start to shake out. Uh, well, let's let's talk a little bit then about what you teed up there, Fernando. You know, let's say you have a U.S. citizen who then invests in Mexico. Um, you know, let's say they buy stock in a Mexican company, and the U.S. citizen, unlike the say Mexican national who's investing in the US, the US citizen has an obligation to pay tax in the US on their worldwide income. Uh, the US doesn't care if the source is in Mexico because we can enforce our tax laws against citizens. We have jurisdiction over citizens. So that's easy pickings for us to enforce our tax laws. So therefore we say, you citizen, you gotta pay tax here on all of your worldwide income. And then we impose certain kind of special regimes on you because we also want to dissuade you from investing your money overseas and not in the U.S. system. So can you maybe hit some of the highlights of those issues for Americans investing abroad, the outbound piece of what you were teeing up? Sure. So so when a, a U.S. national invests abroad, you know, some kind of high level things to consider is that just like you said, the U.S. has a worldwide taxing system. So if you are a U.S. citizen, a green card holder, or, a, or, or an individual that has spent too much time in the U.S., and I'll, I'll, I'll explain that you know, in a little bit more detail. I don't want to confuse the audience just you know, at this moment. But you know, just very broadly, if you're a citizen or a green card holder, the U.S. will enact its you know, tax rules on you and, and, and with regards to your worldwide activities. So, and that's a question we have, you know, all the time, you know, a U.S. national investing abroad, they think, you know, uh, I could do this and there's really nothing I have to do. But, you know, that, that's where the problems start, where in reality, there, there are many different type of informational filing requirements that have to be fulfilled because the IRS and, and the U.S. government has no way to know what its U.S. citizens are doing abroad. 
if not obligating them to self-report on those foreign activities. You know, um, so in your example, if you have a U.S. individual investing in Mexico, first of all, they're going to have to inform the, the U.S. government via some special IRS forms that they have done that and they have to inform what type of investment it is, how large of an investment, what kind of stock ownerships they have in, in that foreign entity, et cetera, what type of activities that foreign entity uh, encompasses and what they do. And then going forward annually, they'll have to report depending on the size of the investment and their stock ownership in, their, in, that, in, in that foreign company, they might have to even be reporting the, that foreign entity's financial information to the, to the U.S. government. And again, the only reason, that, that, well, not the only reason, but one of the reasons they do this is in order to have information readily available in order for the U.S. to be able to tax that individual should they ever pay themselves a dividend, for example, or you know, until very recently, you know, because of the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, there were some new rules that came into play where even if an individual does not pay themselves a dividend out of that foreign entity, they might still be subject to U.S. income. So, um, so that's one, you know, a, a very basic issue that we run into all the time when you have a U.S. national investing abroad where they did made the investment, but then, you know, either forgot about it or didn't really, you know, think too much about it. Um, but in reality, they do have to file informational filings. And in, in many cases, they do also have to pay income tax on any, any earnings they might have uh, generated from that foreign investment. And that's just the U.S. focus. And, and the, the comment I hear sometimes from clients who are describing uh, that they have an investment overseas or they were earning income overseas, they'll say, yeah, but I always paid all of my taxes in that country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I have to break the news to them that the U.S. doesn't really care about that. <laughs> the, exactly. Yeah, surprise, the U.S. does not care if you paid tax to Mexico. We want our share of the cut. And so you have to report all of the income to the U.S. Now, you may get some, some credits or you may get some relief so that you're not double taxed on that income and so that effectively you're only going to pay tax collectively between the two countries at the highest tax rate that applies in, in in both countries, but that doesn't, that doesn't relieve you from the obligation of telling the government that you have the income and then paying whatever is due to the U.S. to the U.S., even though you were earning it and maybe earning it in Mexico and paying tax in Mexico and maybe even filing tax returns in Mexico. None of that matters. The, the IRS doesn't care about any of that. They, we only really care about the U.S. piece and your obligation to comply when you're a U.S. citizen or, or resident, or, you know, green card holder, or stayed too many days in the U.S. as you were talking about, your obligation in the U.S. just exists always. It doesn't. It doesn't arise when you file a return. Uh, it doesn't arise when you uh, engage in a transaction. It doesn't arise when you uh, earn income. It always exists. That's the way the law is written. It just always exists. You may be relieved from it under certain circumstances. Say you didn't have enough income. You might be relieved from the obligation one year to the next from filing a return, for example, in the U.S. But the obligation to file returns, the obligation to pay tax here, the obligation to report foreign dealings in the U.S. always exists. And we do not care about anything else. We just care that it exists and you must comply. I agree. And not only that, you know, a lot of people get lost in the crosshairs here because, uh, you know, not only did they not know that they had these additional file requirements and additional potential tax consequences, but in a lot of cases, it's, it's, it's you know, it's not that they were intentionally cheating the system 
system, you know, a, a lot of times when, when we talk to these clients, and you probably have run into your, this yourself, Brent, where, you know, it could be an individual that inherited somebody, something from a, a grandparent that lived abroad you know, that had, you know, maybe had a, a German citizenship, you know, Japanese citizenship, you know, maybe this is a second generation, you know, or even a, a first first generation uh, U.S. national, but might still have, you know, uh, older generations that live in these foreign countries that have investments in these foreign countries. And then all of a sudden, you know, that, you know, grandparent or, or parent passes away. And now this U.S. individual has to report on all these foreign earnings, foreign activities, foreign investments. Um, so, you know, it's very easy to fall kind of in, in, in this trap where, where, you know, unfortunately, like you said, the IRS in the U.S. US government doesn't really care. You know, what they care is now this US individual is the owner of this foreign stock of this foreign entity. And I'm going to be, and, you know, hopefully I'm going to be able to tax this, you know. So that's really the focus um, that the, the, the US government and the IRS has. And, and then it's, it's up to us, you know, Brent's you know, on you and your, your legal team and, and on my side, on, on the accounting and tax side, uh, to navigate those rules and, and, and advise our clients properly to make sure that they don't, you know, get into trouble or don't do things, you know, that they, they shouldn't be doing. Yep, that's it. And it, it you're right, it can be a really um, difficult conversation to have with some clients. Uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily say I'm sorry, but I feel sorry for some clients who or have a cross-border situation that may not have been because they created it. It, as you say, you know, they may have inherited something from somebody um, that included assets or investments overseas. So it wasn't their fault. They didn't make the investment. They just received this from somebody else. But they are not excused from any of the rules that were originally set up to dissuade the initial investment. To begin with, and yeah. that, that's just our system. We we're we're piggish a bit. We want our money, and we want your money it's here. <laughs> it's not yeah. all. It's not all bad too. Not all bad. It is a yeah. good place to have money too. But you know, and overall, you know, whenever we're talking about, so what do we do? You know, going back to you know Rachel's question, you know, what do we do when we're doing cross-border tax planning, and we're we're specifically focusing on income tax issues because you know I think a, a second part of this entire conversation can be a state you know a state tax issues and even state and local tax issues, but you know we won't get into that right for income tax issues. You know as far as tax planning goes, what I like to do is you know at least know your client, know what's going on, who are the players, what are they invested in, and you know even a question as simple as are they a U.S. citizen? You would be surprised how many times I've I've uh, advised clients and, and 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 you know became part of their team after the fact after they had already filed even the incorrect forms they were filing as a U.S citizen when they weren't or vice versa they were filing as a non-us citizen when in fact they were so you know whenever we're doing cross-border planning and and you know when we have these clients that that contact us especially at the beginning of the engagement we like to you know do a a a, a good you know good part of our due diligence in getting to know our client not only them but their family members you know who they are where they're from what potential assets might be coming their way in the future um, and then from there we can start planning accordingly 
you know, you know, if they do have a grandmother in Germany that might have, you know, as a sizable estate or something that might end up coming their way, well, we want to start talking about how do we structure things in a certain way that will benefit you in the future. Um, and, and, or if, you know, if this is a U.S. national that has investments abroad and is married to a Canadian individual, you know, I just very recently had somebody that had, you know, I think part of our agenda for later on is talking about mixed families. You know, this was a, a U.S. individual individual that his spouse was a Canadian citizen and they were actually jumping across the border you know seeing each other and this was a, a, a you know two retired retired individuals that you know found love um, during their you know second life and got married but then all of a sudden you run into all these different tax issues where she was Canadian and he was you know US citizen and what do you do? She has assets in Canada, investments, retirement accounts, et cetera, et cetera. He has the same here. And then that individual, this, you know, the, the, my, my client, uh, he's also spending a lot of time in Canada. So I also had to advise him of being, you know, being careful of not triggering a Canadian tax issue himself. So, so again, you know, part of the, you know, the, 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 the foundation or the groundwork is knowing your client, knowing what they're doing, where they're spending time, you know, like this one individual, he's spending too much time in Canada. So we want to know that so we can advise them. Maybe you don't go, you know, to, you know, to Canada this summer. <laughs> it could be something as simple as that, that can really save them, uh, you know, many thousands of dollars in, in you know, tax. So. Yeah. And so, okay. So now that we've dissuaded everybody from ever living across borders, <laughs> which is probably not, probably not the intent. Um, uh, I, I actually think it's more a matter of, uh, we have a globalized uh, world, you know, pre-pandemic, I'm assuming post-pandemic, it's going to continue to be a very globalized world, very mobile world, which is great. And there are a lot of really great places in the world. There's a lot of really great uh, countries in the world where you would want to invest money or spend time. It's just you would be wise to walk into that situation with eyes open. And on you, you know, somebody who's going to do that just has to understand that their compliance costs, their administrative costs for tax purposes are probably going to go up because they're going to need to talk to somebody like you every year to make sure that they're not spending too much time in another country, to make sure that the investment that they're considering making is the right one in the right way so it doesn't cause them issues or so they can figure out what is the right way for me to make these kinds of investments so they don't trip, you know, trip up on landmines. Uh, so it, it's really a, people who are advised can navigate the rules pretty well and have very efficient systems and people who are unadvised can easily fall into traps and it's not necessarily their fault. They just wouldn't know that the traps exist because this area is so specialized and and not that well understood generally. So well, let's change gears slightly. Uh, this is more an inbound issue, I think, um, unless you think otherwise, I suppose, uh, Fernando. But uh, on the inbound side of things, let's talk a little bit about the U.S. estate tax. Not every country has an estate tax like we do, um, but let's maybe talk about that specifically as it relates to inbound investments, uh, non-residents in the U.S. Great. So as, 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 as you well know, but you know, maybe some, some people in our audience might not know, the U.S. does have an estate tax. It's maybe not as a, uh, as a you know, commercialized lately because we have what's called a large exemption, right? A, a large exclusion that I think uh, currently sits at around 11.5 million per individual. If you are a U.S. citizen a, you know, or a U.S. green card holder considered domiciled in the U.S., you would be entitled to uh, 
exclude you know, $11.5 million from being subject to U.S. estate tax. So usually people that are concerned about U.S. estate tax are only really those individuals with uh, much more sizable estate. With inbound, you know, foreign nationals investing in the U.S., unfortunately, they do not benefit from this exclusion. Uh, unfortunately, U.S. Uh, foreign nationals investing in the U.S. have a very small exclusion exclusion. It's only $60,000. So you can see how, how quickly foreign individual investing in the U.S. can be entangled and trapped in, in uh, having a U.S. taxable estate all of a sudden. You know, and I, and I tell this to my clients all the time. You can buy a small condo. It can be a $100,000 condo in the U.S. that you want to Airbnb. And all of a sudden, you're, you're, that condo, when that person passes away, or if they ever decide to gift it to you know, their, their sons or their daughters or their grandkids or whoever, will, be now, will now be subject to U.S. estate tax. And, I, and, and, and that is a, an area, a very important area, that, and, and, and where foreign, foreign individuals don't know that this even exists. Because like you said, a lot of foreign countries do not have an estate tax. So they're even surprised when we give them the unfortunate news that the U.S. does. Um, so it's definitely something that we, you know, right off the bat, whenever we're doing our due diligence and, you know, getting to know our clients, um, if it's a foreign national investing in the U.S., the estate tax is immediately one of the first things we start talking about because, you know, any investment, you know, can easily start exceeding the $60,000 pretty quick. Yeah, it's a real, real trap for the unwary. There's, there's sort of two sides to it too that I see. One is, um, first of all, who, you know, who even knows about that rule? It's a, it's a tiny fragment of the world populace. Who even knows that that little estate tax rule applies to non-residents? And second of all, once, for the most part, and, and sorry, I don't, this is, this is going to be a broad overgeneralization, but for the most part, once a foreigner invests in the U.S., it is difficult to change course and get out of those investments in a tax-free way. And often, especially with real estate, it can be just about impossible to get out of the investment in a tax-free way because you're either going to trigger income taxes in the U.S. or capital gains that are taxed at high rates in the U.S. because uh, you have to sell it, or you're making gifts to family members. Well, there's a gift tax that backs up the estate tax, and it also does not have a high exclusion for uh, non-residents. So you may have to pay gift tax on gifts of of property in the U.S. Uh, so it's not easy once somebody's in the mix to get out of the mix for free. It's much better, uh, as with the American who's going to go, say, invest overseas, it's much better for the foreigner before they invest in the U.S. to get properly advised and to do the investment in a way that can avoid these tax rules from applying. Uh, I would say if I was going to try and throw out like a, a rough number of the number of people that I clients that I run into who have not sought the advice before they went and did the thing like buy the condo uh, in the US, it's like nine out of 10 did not seek the advice. Again, because who even knows these rules exist, even ask the question. Oh, yeah. yeah it's, and it's probably 
higher than that. You know, it's, it's higher than 90% for sure. I mean, uh, I'll give you a great example. I had a call two days ago with an individual and, and, and this is where it gets a little bit dangerous, you know, from a U.S. type, you know, when you're, when you're advising a U.S. individual on how, you know, to acquire property or make an investment in the U.S., um, a lot of U.S. practitioners, whether they're, you know, attorneys or tax professionals, you know, accountants, they, they kind of already go into it, you know, kind of a, a, an automatic, you know, set up an LLC, do it this way, do it that way, you know, have your grantor trust, et cetera, et cetera, right? You know, it's, it's, it's very, you know, kind of, I don't want to say basic because it's not basic stuff to do. It's, you know, there's still some planning behind all that, but, but it, when you're doing planning, you know, structural, you know, structuring a deal with a foreign national, all that planning is completely different. So I had, a, you know, coincidentally, I had an individual two days ago call me from Mexico that was investing $1.3 million in a, a warehouse here in Tucson. Which is great for the local economy, you know, it's foreign investment coming to the US, you know, and and, and this individual is very excited of doing it. Unfortunately, the 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 legal the legal advice that he was receiving was, you know, just do it like you would any US individual would do it. You know, just set up an LLC, purchase the property you know, and, and, and hold this personally yourself, which if this was a U.S. individual, you wouldn't really think twice about it. If anything, you would actually be commending the individual for setting up the LLC because as you all know, there, there's a lot of U.S. nationals that don't even take that step, right? Well, for foreign nationals, all of a sudden, for income tax purposes, I think the structure wasn't faulty at all. I mean, the individual would benefit from capital gains rate whenever they would sell that real estate down the line. And it's, it's definitely not a bad structure for, for income from an income tax perspective, from an estate tax perspective. It's, 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 you know, I, I can't find the correct word to use, but it's, it's a, apocalyptic, you know, it's the worst kind of thing that could ever happen. That individual. Oh, and this individual is, is 78 years old. <laughs> so so this individual is is really up there, you know, as far as age, where, you know, something could happen to him very easily within the next 15 years, if, you know, if not sooner. And all of a sudden, that $1.2, $1.3 million investment, you know, at least 40% of that would be going to the U.S. government if that individual passes away. So you can definitely see a lot of upset beneficiaries, you know, or, you know, uh, you know, kids, children, and, you know, grandkids being highly upset of having 40% of $1.2 million going to the U.S. government, you know, in the course of five to 10 years, you know, when this older gentleman passes away. Yeah, exactly. It's that sort of thing where in the, in the U.S. for an American, that's perfectly fine. Uh, under normal circumstances, I'd say that that'd be a pretty typical way to, to structure that investment. But for a non-citizen, non-resident, i.e. non-domiciled person in the U.S. to do it that way, as you say, is apocalyptic. I, that's a great word. You know, the, the, the other part about the estate tax, and this is true for uh, well-to-do U.S. families too, but the, the other part about the estate tax that sometimes catches people by surprise is the fact that it is an excise tax, and that is different from income tax, uh, capital gains tax in a lot of ways. Where, for example, if you buy the warehouse for 1.5 and you sell it for 1.6, uh, you have $100,000 of gain. You pay capital gains on $100,000. So, say a 25% rate, you pay 25 grand in capital gains. You're done. That's the that's the tax. If instead this person you're uh, describing dies and it's worth 1.6 million dollars, you pay 40% of 1.6 million dollars. That's what has to get paid to the IRS. And it doesn't matter that you already put 
$1.5 million into the property. And it doesn't matter that it only appreciated to $1.6 million because the estate tax is an excise tax. It's not like the capital gains tax. It's not a transactional tax uh, that uh, depends on an exchange of, of property or money for, for another piece of property or money, right? It's, it's, just a, it's just a flat percentage of the value of the thing that you own. And when you only have a $60,000 exemption, it's pretty much a flat percentage of the entire value of the thing that you own. Exactly. And, and I'll raise you one more, Brent, you know, now that you're bringing up the fact that it's an excise tax. In their home country, this individual, you know, specifically talking about Mexico, but, you know, if you want to, you know, talk in, in a lot of different countries, they wouldn't be able to take a tax credit against that estate tax in Mexico because that individual doesn't, there is no estate tax in Mexico. And because it's not an income tax, there's nothing that his estate or his, you know, ultimate beneficiaries can do with that other than just take a write-off. They basically just lost 40% of their investment, you know, because of it, you know, just because of yep. poor planning, you know, from the get-go, which, you know, it, it, you know, for lack of a better word, it is apocalyptic, you know, <laughs> to a family, it can be the end, you know, if, if, you know, especially if that's your nest egg, if that's what, you, you know, you, you put all your, your eggs in one basket, well, that basket, all of a sudden, you're only keeping 60% of that. So, and, and, and not even benefiting in your home country in any way of a tax credit or any kind of refund or anything. It's just out the door. It's gone. Yep. Yep. That's it. It's a, it's a pr pretty brutal situation. That's a, I mean, that's a, that's a great example that, that example, you can lower the numbers quite a bit and it, it gets even harder. The other, the other piece to it is, you know, let's say they did buy the condo for $150,000 and now somebody dies. So you've got to pay an estate tax on $90,000. Well, that doesn't relieve you from the obligation to file an estate tax return, just like every other Joe Schmo who has to file an estate tax return. And estate tax returns are not that cheap to put together. And so now you're talking about uh, paying estate tax on $90,000 plus probably thousands of dollars in professional fees to get the return put together. And it starts to be a real painful experience. Yeah. Add, add on top of that probate in a, in yeah. a in another country that you're not even familiar with. A lot of these foreign nationals don't even speak the language here. So you can very easily see how the administrative burden, the tax burden can, you know, can, can really be detrimental to what they thought was going to be this great investment. But with that, you know, I don't want to be, you know, I think this podcast, unfortunately, is, is taking a very negative toll. <laughs> so, <laughs> We've gone to a very dark place. <laughs> I do want to leave the audience with with uh, with with uh, with this. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, what, a lot of times when you're investing abroad, whether it's a U.S. national investing in foreign countries or a foreign national investing in the U.S., it's it's because there's a prospect of gain, right? I mean, it's everybody. You know, at the end of the day, if you're if you are investing, um, it's it's because you do foresee a potential of gain. You know, whether it's real estate, whether it's a stock market, what have you, and the U.S. the U.S system, the financial system, the real estate market and everything in the U.S. is a lot of times seen as a tax haven, not, a, not I want to say a tax haven, but as a haven for foreign nationals that invest in the U.S. because of multiple reasons. You know, our, our, we have a political stability, you know, uh, the political stability situation right now might be questionable, but I mean, at the end of the day, we do have a much stronger political stability in place than a lot of, you know, 
poor country. Our financial system is, is, is highly more dependable and stable than a lot of our foreign financial systems. Our real estate market is really strong, obviously. It's highly liquid. Usually real estate in foreign countries isn't as liquid in the U.S. because, you know, and, and then the U.S. investor might say, hey, that, that's not a, a liquid asset. But the fact that you can turn around residential real estate as quickly as you can here in the U.S. does make it a, a, a somewhat of a liquid asset compared to foreign countries where you'll, you'll actually sit on the property for you know, sometimes even years. So with that, you know, the reason foreign nationals come to the U.S. and invest is because there's a prospect of games, a prospect of wealth. So with that, you know, I, I, you know, I, this podcast is definitely not to discourage individuals from, from investing in the U.S. It's just advising them to, to do it properly, you know, get the proper advice because when there is gain, you know, that family or that individual will profit and will prosper and, it, it, and, and will prosper even more if they did it correctly from the get-go and structure things in such a way where they weren't subject to estates, where they didn't have, you know, unintended income tax consequences or withholding issues, you know, because there are ways of doing it correctly. You know, that's why I wanted to kind of take a step back and not make this podcast just completely negative because there's a lot of positive from, you know, having foreigners investing in the U.S. and vice versa. There's a lot of positive in U.S. individuals investing abroad, you know, and, and that's where you and I, you know, we see our clients and, and, and basically how much wealth they've, they've been able to accumulate by, you know, expanding operations abroad or vice versa, a foreign company opening up operations in, in, in the U.S. Okay, that was part one. Hope you enjoyed it. Part two, remember, is coming next week, and it will be a discussion about very specific U.S. and Mexico issues and planning tools that can be used. See you then.